0: I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. All right, Cowboys, we are back in the saddle again here to talk critically about Easy A. But before we get started, I want to talk a bit about textual analysis and extra textual analysis. Textual analysis refers only to the text itself. What is there for us to see that we can pull into something that makes sense? When we're doing narrative structure analysis, as we did for Easy A in episode 16 of this podcast, we're doing a textual analysis. We took a sharp look at what was in the movie, and we pulled from that our central narrative conflict, Olive versus Olive, and our three-act, seven-anchor scene structure, which fell together pretty nicely. Anything extra textual, the writers, the director, the era in which the movie was released, the other movies from which it took its cues, are not really relevant there. But for critical analysis, that field opens up quite a bit. You can pull from things that aren't in the original story text you're reading from, like the context of the time in which it was made, as we did for His Girl Friday, or the cultural references it makes, as with Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, which features prominently in Easy A. And here's the thing about critical analysis. You can pull from anything. As long as you can support your argument with evidence from the original text, in this case, easy A, then you're good to go full extratextual with your other support. And this, my friends, is where critical analysis gets fun, because you can see whatever you want in the text, and you can go with whatever area of analysis interests you. I'm currently fascinated by societal structures with regard to feminism and the patriarchy, and when I see them in stories, it piques my interest. The messages a story sends, especially the ones it doesn't seem to consciously send, are incredibly powerful and can often be destructive, so learning to see them and reject the accepted societal premises on which they are based is really important. As with the phenomenon of terroir, what's in the soil the grapes are planted in gets in the wine, these cultural messages come in a variety of flavors. It's in everything from casting in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, why are there so few people of color, especially Hispanic people of color, in Sunnydale, California, to rape culture in 16 Candles, in which our romantic hero, Jake Ryan, hands his drunk girlfriend over to a nerd and says, have fun, she's so drunk, she won't even know you're not me. But narrative criticism isn't just about terroir and societal frames. It's about everything. It's about what you see. It's like your own personal Rorschach test. What do you see in the big blobby thing that is easy A? Now, that may seem like too little restriction. If I can just talk about anything at all, what makes my criticism even valid? How do I know that what I see is legit? Textual support, that's how. You draw from the text, the movie, TV show, video, game, or book you're engaging with, and you pull it into the extra textual, making societal connections, cultural criticisms, historical analogs, whatever. Remember death of the author. It doesn't matter if the creators intended it. If you see it and you can lay out the textual evidence for it, it's there. So pick the things that speak to you, that you find interesting, and follow them. Is there a significance in Easy A to the colors Olive wears? Does her wardrobe track the ever-darkening of her soul as she evolves from honest Olive to lying Olive, getting darker and darker as she gets darker and darker? If you watch it and you see significance in the evolution of not just the style of her garments, which do become increasingly suggestive, but in the color, you might have something. Now, I haven't gone through and done a fashion analysis of Olive's outfits, but if that's your wheelhouse, then go for it. Maybe your interest is literary and you can do a deep textual compare and contrast between EZA and the Hawthorne novel it references, The Scarlet Letter. Aside from the sled shaming I don't see a huge connection, but maybe you do. So go for it. Look for evidence within the text that your theory has merit. Then play it through and see where it takes you. That's when things get fun. Okay, back to EZA. In episode 16, where I did the structural analysis for EZA, I talked a bit about the central narrative conflict for this movie, which is an internal conflict. Olive who wants to be kind versus Olive who wants to be honest. Now, as we've discussed, a mutually exclusive conflict requires that the two options be mutually exclusive, which means that the world in which the story exists is one in which kindness and honesty are mutually exclusive values. And that's going to require some unpacking. We see this dichotomy pretty clearly throughout the movie. When someone is vulnerable with Olive, she wants to be kind. And in order to be kind, she chooses to lie because telling the truth, by her estimation, would be unkind. And since this is an internal conflict ruled by the laws of Olive's internal world, we can say that in her world, kindness and honesty are mutually exclusive. But of course, it's this very idea that causes so much trouble for Olive, right? She has a belief system that is faulty. You cannot be both kind and honest. And we see that when she applies that belief system to her world, everything goes haywire until she changes her framework and decides to finally tell the whole truth, which is what we see her doing in the very first bit to camera. After which, we see her engaging in her first lie, telling her best friend, Rhiannon, that she can't go camping with a weird family that weekend because she has a date with a college boy. But then we see in flashback her kind lie to Todd, telling everyone they kissed at a party so no one would make fun of him for being scared to kiss a girl. So as we follow Olive from one kind lie to the next, we see her shamed for the things she didn't do and unacknowledged for the things she did do. And in this way, we show that her belief system is faulty because we have clear consequences for her living to that belief. But what exactly is the movie saying about honesty versus kindness in general? That it's always wrong to lie, no matter what? I don't know about that. The central conflict is honesty versus kindness, but in the end, Olive doesn't suffer because she lies. She suffers because of the kind of lie she told. She said she'd had sex. And then she said it over and over again with a bunch of boys and got herself a reputation. But because she didn't really have sex with these boys, because she was still chaste, it was undeserved slut-shaming. So what is the message saying about the girls who do have sex? We see the judgmental Christian group on campus, headed by the snooty Marianne, as being wrong-headed, hypocritical villains, but what about the shaming that came from the rest of the school? Is it okay, then? Or is her having sex only a problem because she talked about it, because she decided to play into the game and put a red A on her chest while parading her increasingly decreasing outfits through the school? Well, what if Olive did have sex? Would that mean that all the gossiping and mistreatment she received was deserved and therefore right? What exactly is this movie critiquing? At the end, when Olive is laying out the whole truth for everyone, she says that maybe she'll have sex with Todd, and maybe she won't, but if she does, it's none of anyone's damn business. Given that this is our ending note, and explicitly stated, I'm taking the movie at its word that we are shaming the slut-shaming, and saying that what a girl does with her body is her own business, and no one else's, and no one has the right to judge her. I'd be happy with that, except we've got some other problems. Olive opens her narration saying that she's invisible, commenting on how boys don't notice her and how her breast size is below average, then talks about how lying about herself got her attention. There is no explicit goal in this movie where Olive seems to want that kind of attention. That's not what she's after. What she's after is kindness. And yet we open this movie with the same kinds of complaints that we see in so many teenage girls in this type of film. She is somehow lacking because she's not getting attention from boys because her breasts are not big enough. The fact that these are the first things Olive tells us about herself in a movie that is not explicitly about that shows how these ideas are so ingrained in stories about women. The first thing women think of, because it's the first thing they're conditioned to think about themselves, is that somehow being unnoticed by or unattractive to men has a direct impact on her value as a human being. It's just taken as read. We've seen this kind of thinking over and over again. From almost every Molly Ringwald character in the John Hughes movies of the 80s to a huge majority of modern romantic comedies, women are primarily concerned with their value as it relates to their attractiveness to men. Now a quick heads up to anyone listening with young kids in earshot. You may want to turn the volume down or pop the earbuds in, as a concept I'm about to talk about is expressed in explicit language. All right, we good? The message being sent repeatedly to women through these movies is that if you're not fuckable, you don't have value. And once our plucky heroine becomes adequately fuckable, take off those glasses, let the hair down, get a push-up bra, put on some makeup, then she gets the prize. Which is a boy. And the boy doesn't have to be actually prize-worthy. He just needs to be a boy now i don't think anyone's going to be terribly shocked when i tell you that the vast majority of movies up until very recently were written by men john hughes wrote those molly ringwald movies of the eighties sixteen candles pretty in pink even the breakfast club has some of those themes Some kind of wonderful almost gets a pass in that the prize boy in question eventually chooses his tomboy best friend, except that this quote unquote unfuckable girl is played by Mary Stuart Masterson, who has on full makeup and is decked out in black leather the whole time. Also, this movie is told from the perspective of the boy, so we don't really go deeply into the POV of the women in that movie. All right, so let's go to some other movies with this theme. In the 90s, we have She's All That, in which the mousy girl is made fuckable by a high school jock, written by R. Lee Fleming Jr., a man. Grease from the 70s, in which mousy Sandy can't get hot Danny Zuko to openly show his love for her until she packs herself into black leather, teases her hair, piles on the makeup, and calls him a stud. The original Broadway musical was written by Jim Jacob and Warren Casey, and adapted for the 1978 film by Bronte Woodward. All men. Easy A was written by Bert V. Royal. And guess what? Bert does not stand for Bertrice. Now, I'm not saying that every movie that shows young women objectifying themselves has been written by a man. Never Been Kissed was written by Abby Cohn, although she co-wrote it with a man, Mark Silverstein. And Never Been Kissed also takes a smart, capable young woman from mousy to fuckable. And in the end, her prize? She finally gets a kiss from a man. Okay, so we've got a woman writing a movie with these themes. Does that break my analysis that men write movies that repeatedly send these messages? I would argue no, because as I stated up until recently, these movies were written by men and seen by women who have internalized these messages to the point where often we don't see what we're doing either. We are playing the tune the way we were taught. Although I will say that I can't recall a woman opening a Nora Ephron movie with a monologue about the inadequate size of her breasts. Now, here's the thing. Some of these storylines in isolation are not necessarily bad. I'm going to tell you, I love transformation stories. Never Been Kissed with All Its Problems is one of my favorite movies. I love My Fair Lady. Hell, I love Taming of the Shrew, and sexist messaging doesn't get more classic than that. Although there are arguments that Shakespeare's original framing device for the play can be read as a mitigating factor. Whatever. The point is, I'm not saying we can't enjoy these stories, that one problematic area means the story itself must be shunned. It's just that we need to pay attention to the raindrops. One raindrop, when you're running around without an umbrella, is not a problem. You wipe the water away, and you keep on trucking. It's when they fall repeatedly, over and over, until you're soaked. That's when they become part of a problem. And young women are soaked with these narratives from the time they're children. Let's not forget that Snow White's great hope for her life is that someday her prince will come. And Cinderella's fairy godmother makes her all beautiful for the prince's ball instead of, you know, squirreling her away to a place where she won't be abused by her stepmother on a daily basis. Look, lady, if you can make a chariot out of a pumpkin, you can find a decent foster family for this poor kid. And if I can step out of the critique for a moment, this is what I was talking about when I was talking about extra textual. Here, I just created a feminist reading of EZA that had me talking about everything but EZA for like the last two minutes. You can go broad with this stuff. But when you do, don't get lost in the weeds, as I am getting perilously close to doing. Bring it back home. Easy A is a story that works so hard at rejecting the premise of the idea that a woman should be shamed for what she does or doesn't do with her body, and yet it fails to question some essential presumptions about that shame. We even get this from Olive very early in the movie. She says, I didn't mean for the lie to put me on the map, but I have to admit, I kind of liked being on the map. So these are the choices. Keep your glasses on and your hair up, be unfuckable, and don't get seen. Or you can change it as something you aren't and be seen. Easy A fails to question that. It fails to interrogate the reality it lives in, that girls who sleep around are shamed as sluts, but boys who do are heralded as heroes. Let's not forget middle school Olive, who told everyone that she kissed Todd so he would be seen as weak or unmanly to his peers. Olive, who has voluble fake sex with Brandon at a party so the kids at school would stop beating him up for being gay. At the party, he's celebrated by the boys, and Olive is, once again, slut-shamed. This is a result of the premises we, as society, fail to reject, that women are constantly told to be fuckable in order to be seen, but for God's sake, don't be seen fucking anyone, except maybe prize boy. And that concludes my reading of Easy A. You may not have seen what I saw, or you may have seen it and come away with something completely different, but either way, I would love to hear what you saw all right that's it for today if you have questions about how story works call 302-643-CHIP that's 302-643-2447 and leave a message or you can email me at lonnie at com, or contact me on twitter at lonnie diane rich or at chiprish with the hashtag how story works how story works is a free college level course in narrative theory and is entirely supported by listener donations for as little as a dollar a month you can help keep it in production and gain access to exclusive Chiprish content and a community of smart people who love stories visit patreon.com chipperish for more information thanks so much and i'll see you next time